Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Praise God. Did anybody have anything from worship that you saw or wanted to share? So, you know, while we were worshiping and stuff like that, um, I don't know, this is it's a little interesting, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, so, when we were worshiping, there was this uh, sudden light that I saw, and there, there were like, I don't know, it was like stone or something, it was formed, it was built up, and then all of a sudden, after we were worshiping, you just just blood just started pouring out of it. But it wasn't just like the tech blood. It was really like crimson blood that was just pouring out of the rock and stuff like that. And it was just, just coming out and it was just covering, you know, it was just covering everything and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, it was just like it started covering the people and stuff like that and just kept going and going and going and stuff like that. So I have no idea that had no significance or anything like that, but it was just something I just felt like that didn't sure. So it was, you said it was a rock. It was rocks. It was like a, like, I would say like, I just think of like the, I don't want to say like the temple, but kind of formation like limestone that was built on top of each other, built up really high, and then just all of a sudden just this crimson blood just pouring out and stuff like that. It was just a very, like a settled core, but it just kept going and it covered the people awesome yeah that's totally to do with this week's portion okay. <laughs> 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 praise God yeah, that's cool it'll come it'll come into the discussion so excellent thank you for sharing that and having the courage to share even what seems strange. Because when, when God gives us dreams, visions, things like that, it's not always clear what the meaning is. And sometimes it takes the body to begin to say, oh, wait a minute, here's what he's showing, to bring forth the revelation of, of what his message is. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your love, your kindness. Oh, Lord, thank you that your word and your testimonies are true. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. Lord, you speak to us in mysteries and that you conceal a matter. And it's your glory to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Lord, we ask that you'd give us revelation, Lord, that you would draw us close to you, shine your light on us, and may we give you praise and honor in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. All right. So... This week, we're in, par, our parasha is Hukat, okay? Which, Hukat is a special kind of commandment. And it's one that, in some ways, is a bit of a mystery, okay? It's one that's hard to understand, that requires revelation. There are four types of laws mentioned in the Torah. There's a mitzvah, which is a commandment. There is a mishpat, which is an ordinance or a legal ruling. There's a chok, which is the base root, or is the root word of chukat, which is often translated as a statute. 
And then there is the word Torah, which is the word for the overarching law, commandments of God, and the instruction. But it primarily means instruction. So this week, with the portion, the portion is named Chukat because it's speaking about a statute of God regarding this red heifer. Now, the thing about a hook is that it's understood to be a commandment of God that does not have a rational explanation. It's one that goes beyond the understanding of man, right? But it's within the understanding of God, right? His, his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. His plan, what he's commanding, what he's asking us to do may go beyond what we can understand, but that doesn't make it any less valid. Oftentimes people say, oh, well, you know, what's this command for? And once I understand it, I'll do it. But these uh, hokim, these, these statutes demonstrate to us that it's not about our understanding. It's about obedience unto God's word and trusting that he'll give the revelation in the right time and that he knows better than we do. Like when you have a small child and you tell him not to run out in the street, it's like, I don't really care about trying to explain to you all the details of why you shouldn't run in the street. Just don't run in the street. I'll tell you the rest of the details when you need to know, right? Which, you know, maybe you tell early on. But the idea is the kid doesn't need to understand. They just need to hear their parents' voice and obey. And so with these, uh, these hooks, right, these statutes, they're God's eternal decrees that we're to follow, whether he tells us in this life or the next what they mean. Right. If we, if you, you've seen the show Jeopardy, right? If there was, you know, how they have different things, and we'll say, well, I'll take uh, places and things for four hundred dollars. Well, if there was a category in Jeopardy, this would be things that require revelation, right? I'll take uh, things that require revelation for four hundred dollars. And he says, well, <laughs> and they go in and they talk about the red heifer, the fiery serpents, and the Moses speaking to a rock, right? Those are all ones. And then there may be another one that needs to be part of that category, which was what is the mystery of God's plan of redemption for all of mankind that was hidden until the right time and then revealed in Yeshua, right? So the, these uh, hukot, or yeah, they're, they're full of meaning, but they may not be understandable in the plain and simple sense. They need revelation from God, but they will be revealed. And through Yeshua, we actually come to understand more of what some of these statutes really do mean. Or at least we understand a part of them. We may not understand them in full. And there may yet be some that are to be revealed. But we see we're, what we're going to talk about this week is the mysteries of God. Okay, The mysteries of God revealed through this week's Torah portion. Okay, so... Um, the mystery of God is talked about quite a bit in the Brit Hadashah, right? In the apostolic scriptures. So I want to look just at a couple of them here from Ephesians 3, uh, verses 8 through 12. Paul's writing, To me, though I am ve- I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the assembly the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Yeshua Messiah our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence 
through his faithfulness. And then Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3. Paul writes here, saying that his desire is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of fullness, of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Messiah, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? And so, you know, with the coming of Yeshua, with his, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, we began to see the mysteries of God's plan of re- restoration and redemption revealed in him. And after he was resurrected, he was walking on this road. I think it's called the Emmaus Road, something like that, with a, with a couple of people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, Emmaus Road. But they, so he was walking with two disciples, not, not two of the twelve, but two disciples on the road, and they were telling him all that's happened, and he's kind of playing along to see what they would say. And then in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, we get to a key part where, he, where Yeshua speaks to them and says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. himself. And in this too, there's other translations that say he opened their minds to see what was revealed, written of him in the scriptures. But here he is saying, look, you know, it's, it's been written of me, right? But you didn't comprehend the fullness of it, right? So now let me explain more to you about how the scriptures have revealed the Messiah. And so now here we are, Emmaus Road, right? Our whole desire is to encounter Yeshua in the scriptures, to find him revealed, to have the revelation of the Lord, and then to go and be his witnesses to the nations. So it's that's exciting. So we need to understand his revelations. And so we're going to look at some of those. This week, there are so many things that we could talk about and probably spend the entire time on. Um, but we'll end up having to just kind of touch on a few. I don't know how deep we'll get to go on them. But really, when I when I looked at the, the portion overall and saw the components of the water that came from the rock, the serpent that, or, that was raised up on the pole, and then the uh, uh, let me see. Oh, the red heifer, yes. Then what I saw in that was the birth of Yeshua, which comes through the merit, merit of Miriam. Okay. Now this merit of Miriam we're going to talk about actually plays into the water coming from the rock. And then we're talking about Miriam in the desert. Right through her merit, and then of course, then you have Miriam who gave birth to Yeshua, who was one favorite of women, and through her merit came forth the Messiah. Right, and then we have water that comes forth from the rock specifically. Okay, and we know that the rock is Messiah, and we know that the water that comes forth from him is his teaching. It's the Torah, because the Torah is often likened unto water. Right, and then we had we see his death that occurs for the sins of the nation when this serpent is placed on the pole and raised up in the wilderness. Okay. Um, and, and all those who will repent and look to him are healed. You have the picture there. And then finally, we have a victory over death. Well, there, I guess even more so, there are, there are other victories over our enemies when you have 
the the uh, king of Arad, Sihon, and Og all destroyed, right? And then we have the final victory over death, which is the cleansing from death that occurs through the ashes of the red heifer. All these are part of these, well, really, they all point to the life and work of Yeshua. All of these, well, not all of them, those three key ones being things that are inexplicable without revelation from God, right? So the mystery revealed, and the mystery revealing Messiah and his work. All right, so let's go and let's take a look at the first piece, which is the rock. And I spoke of the merit of Miriam. Um, Let's read Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. Okay, this first month is the first month of the 40th year in the wilderness. Okay, so they've just completed 39 years, and now they're beginning the 40th year in the wilderness. So they have one more year until they will arrive outside of Jericho with Joshua at the helm. So in this one year that lies ahead, um, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses will all die, and Joshua will be taking up the helm. So that's where we are in time, because last week, we were still right after the sin of the spies, which was just a year and a half into the wilderness, not even a year and a half. So so a lot of time has passed, and we're in the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at, at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. All right, so a lot takes place here. And we're going to start with the the merit of Miriam and why I bring that up. So at the beginning, if we go back to Numbers 20, verses 1 and 2, Miriam died there and was buried, and there was no water for the congregation. Okay, Right there, put together, Miriam dies, and there is no water for the congregation. And now if we go back 
to, okay, so just a quick thing here. The sages recognize here that the reason the water stopped was because it only flowed in the merit of Miriam. And there's, there's more reasons than just these, this passage being side by side. If you think back to what took place after the parting of the Sea of Reeds, the children of Israel go across, they go three days into the wilderness, and they say they find water, but it's bitter, and they can't drink it. They say, what are we going to do? And so Moses uh, gets the solution from God and turns the bitter waters to pure waters that they can drink. And then you go forward a little further, and again, the children of Israel come to a place where they're like, we don't have any water. And so then God tells Moses to strike the rock. And Moses strikes the rock, water comes forth. Then we go forward about 39 years, and that's the next time we hear about not having water is a complaint right here after Miriam passes. So they've had water, okay, all this time, but now they don't. They've been traveling in a desert wilderness that does not have oases and rivers all over the place. So instead, the sages teach that the rock that Moses struck, that brought forth the waters, it followed Israel through all of their journeys in the wilderness. Okay, now we can sometimes hear some outlandish stories and think, you're telling me that this rock followed the children of Israel all the way through their wanderings? I haven't seen many rocks follow people around. <laughs> so so is this just craziness? It's like, well, no, it, it's it's not craziness. It's actually affirmed it, uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Right? Um, we'll, just, we'll quickly look at that, and then we'll come back to what I, what I was going to say here. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Messiah. Okay? So he's pulling from this same teaching from the sages about the rock following the people. Now, in this case, there's, he's talking about a spiritual aspect, but he's tying it in that this, they were drinking from the Torah, uh, and he was pulling from the idea about this rock following the children of Israel through the wilderness. And then, too, when God told Moses to speak to the rock, he said, speak to the rock. He didn't say, speak to that rock. Speak to this rock. Speak to a rock. He said, said speak to the rock. So there was a specific rock that should have been known to Moses that he would have gone to speak to. And that would have been the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness. Now, we're talking about the merit of Miriam as well, okay? I mentioned three times that the children of Israel complained about not having water. Okay, And in all three of those times, you find Miriam's name in the scripture. Okay. Not written with the same vowels as Miriam, but the same root letters of her name presented in each episode. In the first one, after the crossing of the Red Sea, the waters were bitter. They were marim. Okay, The waters were bitter. They were marim. At the first striking of the rock, Moses lifted his arms, Merim, his arm, or the staff. Merim, the staff. 
And at the second striking of the rock, Moses says, okay, you rebels, you Morim. So Miriam's name was written in all three episodes of the water. And after the passing through the Red Sea, she was the one who led the rejoicing and the singing. Right? And so the sages, in connecting all of these things, said the water flowed from the rock in the merit of Miriam. So, so when she passed, something needed to come, you know, there needed to be additional provision. And so God said, okay, I'm going to bring the provision, but this time you're going to speak to the rock and water will come forth. And so it, then, you know, what's really neat when you think about that whole story is that, you know, as Paul said here in 1 Corinthians, the rock was Messiah that the water poured forth from. And then you have Miriam, who's betrothed to Joseph, and the angel shows up and says, you're going to bear a son, and you will call him Yeshua, for he will save people from their sins. And so... Miriam had found favor before the Lord for her righteousness. And because of her righteousness, she had merited the privilege of bearing the Messiah and then bringing forth through the waters the rock of salvation, the waters of birth, right? Through the waters of birth, she brought forth the rock of salvation. And that rock of salvation went and spoke forth the wells of salvation, the water of salvation, the Torah of salvation pouring forth from him. And so um, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 12, 2 through 3, the scripture says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has been my salvation. And I think I got the wrong verse. I quoted the wrong verse. Oh, 12. I wrote the wrong one on here. So the one on the screen is wrong. Sorry about that. So Isaiah 12, 2 through 3, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the wells of salvation, the wells of Yeshua. Right? So that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty exciting there so, to think about Yeshua and him teaching forth the Torah. And that's what he did. After he was raised up, then he went forward to call the children of Israel to repentance and to speak the good news of the kingdom. Now, within this, the first time that water was brought forth from the rock, God told Moses to strike it. So he struck it, water came forth. This time God says, go and you will speak to the rock and water will come forth. But specifically, if we were to look back to the first time in Exodus 17, 6, which I don't think we don't have the scriptures for this, the scripture says, you will strike the rock. Uh, do we do? Okay, you will strike the rock <laughs> and water will come out of it that the people may drink. But then in Numbers 20, verse 8, he says, speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Okay. I don't know if y'all see a, a difference here, but in the first time, it was water will come out of it. Strike it, and water will come out of it. It will just, it'll have to it'll just give up. The rock will just, it's the water is going to come out whether the rock, rock wanted them to or not. This next time, you're going to speak to it, and the rock will give its waters. So there's one, the rock is not cooperative. The second one, the rock 
cooperates. Does that seem strange? It may seem a little strange, right? Well, it, it can be that, yeah. And, and I think what it is, when, when I think of it, it's the reversal of the curse. Okay, so think about in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. Now, the, the earth brought forth uh, vegetation and fruit and all that without toil. Okay, then Adam and Eve sinned, and God says, okay, curse is the land. You're going to, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to bring forth, you know, food from the, from the earth. And then Cain goes and, and murders Abel, right? And he spills Abel's blood. Abel's blood calls out from the earth, you know, to God. And God says to, to Cain that he is cursed. And uh, I'm trying to remember, I may have had the notes in here, but he tells Cain that, that he's cursed and, and that there's going to be even more challenge for him. He's going to be a wanderer on the earth, right? And so creation went from giving forth of itself provision to being hardened and only working through toil. So when the, when the rock is struck, it's the toil. But then as the redemption draws nigh, right? Because the children of Israel are within a year now of going into the promised land. As the redemption draws nigh, nigh the rock is now responding to the word of God to, to give forth that which it can give forth as opposed to through toil. So kind of a neat, neat thing there, right? And so you think about when Yeshua was coming um, before his crucifixion at the triumphal entry in Luke 19, verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Adonai, as we sang earlier, right? And peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Right? Even the stones would respond to his coming as part of the redemption and the reversing of the curse. Right? Now often... Uh, if you're like looking at cross-references, people would refer that back to Habakkuk 2. Because in Habakkuk 2, um, it speaks about uh, the, the stones crying out from the wall. But I really don't think that that's... I mean, sure, it talks about the things crying out. But the context of Habakkuk is not a good context. It's a context of the wicked being found out. And that the rocks are going to cry out what the wicked do. So I don't think Yeshua was saying... Hey, if they remain quiet, then these stones will say all the wicked things I'm doing. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. They're gonna. The stones are gonna declare the glory of God and His restoration that's taking place. And if you knew what was here right now, you would repent and you would receive the kingdom, right? So, instead, I think that it more likely ties back to this story where the rock was supposed to speak forth as the redemption drew nigh. Okay. And then also, too, it, it uh, ties into Isaiah 55, which actually I meant to read Isaiah 55, but I was telling Jared before we started that my notes are crazy. And so they're all over the place. So I, I skipped it. So I do want to go back to Isaiah 55 because it's 
to such a great passage, and I think it actually has so many elements of what we're talking about today. Um, but okay, so, and it even, it's so funny, when I read this, you know, we're singing about Yeshua saying the stones would crowd, I was thinking, oh yeah, and the trees of the field will clap their hands and all this stuff, and then I kind of went away a little while, and then Isaiah 55 came, and I read Isaiah 55, I'm like, oh, that's similar. trees of the field will clap their hands, okay. So, so let's go to Isaiah 55, if that's in there. There we go. Okay, now, um, I, I probably will stop in here and just say what I feel like the connections are. So come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. How about that? You know, the waters of Torah, right? And the water that comes forth from the rock. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Okay, so right here, we're having a, a look at Messiah, the coming Messiah who will renew, renew the covenant, make a new covenant with the house of Judah and Israel. It's the mystery hidden, right? Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that that did not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God and the one of and and of the holy one of Israel for he has glorified you seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the uprighteous man his thoughts let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and here we have the repenting and looking to the serpent on the pole. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Here's the Kukot. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but shall accomplish that which i purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which i sent it so here's god's plan of redemption where he sends the messiah who succeeds in completing the work of redemption for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And then carrying over into chapter 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Pretty exciting, right? I mean, you ever need some motivation, go read Isaiah 55. Right? The mysteries. God will accomplish, and he will bring to fruition. All right, so one, one other thing that, just to, before we move on from that rock, uh, traditionally the, the sages teach that one of the key things that God wanted in the sanctifying of his name was Moses speaking to the rock and the waters coming forth to say that even if something that does not have the faculties of thought or will will respond to my voice and obey my command, how much more should that which I've created in my image and have called by my name and brought to me do 
my will when I speak. All right. So we go forward from the from the teaching or from from the rock, and now we venture further into the wilderness. The children of Israel wanted to pass by the kingdom of Eden, Edom, on their way to the promised land because that was the most direct route. So they sent word to Edom, and Edom said no. So the children of Israel had to turn and go south when they wanted to go north, which can be pretty frustrating, right? Because you're like, okay, hey, we're in year 40. It's time. Let's go. We're right there. All we had to do is pass right through here. No, we can't do that. We're, gonna, we're going the other way? Are you serious? Okay, that can be a little bit demoralizing. And so they begin to complain. And they, they're complaining about their water and about their food. And God says, I've given you water from the rock and I've given you manna from heaven. You still have those things. Why are you complaining? And so <clears throat> then we come to the issue of the fiery serpent. So let's read in Numbers 21. Starting in verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, am I in the right spot? I think I'm okay. Heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. For... From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. There's no food, and we loathe this food? Okay, anyway. then the, Maybe they meant other food. There's no other food, and we loathe this manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, so it kind of seems strange. Oh, yes, we have a question. So <clears throat> it says to make a fiery serpent. Um, why did it say specifically fiery? Was the serpent, what, did it look like it was on fire? Uh, no, it's, it's thought that when the snake would bite, that the venom would cause a burning sensation. As though you were on fire. So the serpent he set up, the bronze serpent, was made to look like the snakes? Uh, perhaps. Yeah, it, it very likely did look like them. Um, and there's actually a deeper meaning to the aspect of it being a bronze serpent, um, which we'll get into in just a moment. But good questions. Do you have any others? Okay. No. Okay. Um, I do. I, I, I feed. I feed them questions. Be like, okay, if things aren't going well, I want you to bring something up, and uh, 
pull, pull me out of this. Okay. <laughs> Please change the subject. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, okay, so the bronze, okay, so the fiery serpent, so the scripture says it's a, a saraf, okay, so it's like, it doesn't actually say a serpent, it's like, it says it's a burning one. And, and within the scriptures too, it, when it said that he sent forth the serpents, the more accurate translation for the way that the Hebrew is conjugated would be that he released the serpents. As opposed to sending them forth, he released them. Okay? Now, which is interesting because in Deuteronomy 8, the scripture talks about how you remember how God led you through the wilderness, and this wilderness was full of serpents and scorpions and all these things, right? And how it didn't have any water. So it was describing the wilderness as, as it was. Now, the children of Israel, as they went through the wilderness, they had a different experience. The, snake, the snakes, these fiery serpents, and the scorpions didn't bother them, and they had water. Until this moment, when the snakes did bother them. So all the years prior, God had held the snakes back, protecting his people. And now the people start to say, we don't, your provision's terrible. And he says, Okay, well, I'm going to have to step back a little bit. You know, if my provision's not good, see what my provision, my lack of provision looks like. Whoa. And the snakes were released from being held back. That's part of the, uh, the first of the, the Torah, of this reading, that you will allow the wild beasts to come into the land and attack its people. That's exactly right. It's, it's a difference. I mean, the wild beasts exist. It's does he, do they have the, the hedge of protection or do they not? And that's, that's where the beasts come and the pestilence comes and all those things. Because even with, you know, none of the diseases of Egypt will come on you if you will hearken to me and obey my voice and be faithful to my commands, right? Same thing. It's held back versus covering removed and the natural consequences taking place. Okay? So, so now these are released and they come and begin to bite the children of Israel and the children of Israel begin to die. They realize they're wrong. They ask for a solution. God's solution, notice, it actually wasn't to take away the snakes. It was to give them something that they could do out of repentance and faith when they were bitten to be redeemed. Right? So he says, take this bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole, specifically on a nace. Do you all know what a nace is? A nace is a miracle. It's also a sign or a banner. Yeah, exactly. And so, so yeah, so he was raising it up on a nace, on a, on a sign, on a banner. And when the children of Israel were in need and were doomed to die for their, for, as a consequence of their sin, if they would repent and look to this, they would be healed. But if they were bit. If they were bit. Yeah, if they were bit, then they would look to this and they would be healed. Right. So it was the antidote. The ant- and now, so then the sages say, well, could, the, could this serpent kill or bring to life? And they say, but, but what it means when the children of Israel looked up toward heaven for help and submitted their will to that of their father in heaven, they were healed. But when they did not, they perished. Right? And so that was the whole thing. It's like, because it wasn't this image that they were looking at that had any mystical power. Rather, this was a sign to them and God said, if you do this, you will live. So out of obedience, even though they're like, 
I don't know how this thing's actually going to do anything for us, but okay, I'm going to look to it because God said to, and now, all right, I'm healed because of obedience and faith and trust in God. And when they... When, yeah, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Why would I look to the very thing that is... And why do I look to a statue of the thing that's killing me? Uh, why don't we destroy the statue and that symbolically will destroy all the snakes? But no, look to it. Right? The thing that was bringing death is going to bring life. And so there's a lot of really cool stories to that that we won't be able to go into totally. I know. Okay, we're going to touch a little bit. So the bronze serpent, okay, it's a, uh, Nehoshet is bronze and Nehash is the serpent, okay? Nehash in Hebrew has the same numerical value as Mashiach, Messiah. So the snake and the Messiah have the same numerical number which means that there is a relationship there. So this mystery that was kind of hidden here in the raising up of the serpent was a picture of the Messiah being raised up on a pole such that all who looked to him would be healed when they were bitten by the serpent. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool, right? And so, so yes, yeah, so this was a picture of Messiah. And when you think about Yeshua, right? Uh, in John 3, 14 through 16, um, the scripture says, and, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then in John 12, verses 32 through 33, Yeshua says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So here he is referring, John's referring back to the serpent being raised up, being a picture of Messiah being raised up. And Yeshua even is giving, hey, I'm going to be lifted up on a pole and I will draw all men to myself. Which actually harkens back to Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12. And I skip verse 11 here for you know, just ease. But it says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And he will lift up a standard, a nace for the nations, and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This nace, this banner that's raised up to the nations, is the Messiah who will gather in all the exiles and will bring forth the ingathering of the nations and the messianic kingdom. Right? So look to this serpent. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. But God's like, it makes total sense. Just be obedient and listen to me, and I'll reveal it to you in the right time. <laughs> so we look to Yeshua, and he redeems us from the Sin, the, from the sting of death, the, the pain of what sin would bring. And so, one last thing that I'm not going to go into big detail on. Uh, kind of goes all the way back to Jacob wrestling with the angel of Esau, or with the angel before he crossed over. He was wrestling, you know, essentially with uh, what can be thought of as the spirit of death. There's many things that it could be. 
But the fact is, he was wrestling with what appeared to be an enemy, but a blessing actually came forth from it. Right? And so, um, in many ways, Yeshua today is thought of as a thing that would bring death to the Jewish people because it would be a turning away from God to believe in Yeshua. So yet, in some ways, he's seen as a Nachash, but he is the Messiah. Right? So that's another neat connection there. All right. Um, so he is the, the the Messiah raised up on the nace for our healing and our restoration. All right. So now we've gone through the birth of Yeshua. We've gone through the teaching of Yeshua. We've gone through the suffering for the sins of Yeshua, of Yeshua or of the nation, and the healing that He brings for all those who will put their faith faith in God and trust in His deliverance. So now we've got. Redemption coming through, but we still have another enemy that needs to be defeated. I mean, there's more enemies to be defeated along the way. You got Sihon, you got Og. Those are the battles that we face in our walks in life, right? But God is our strength, and He's the one who gives us victory when we go forth according to His plans and His purposes. But now there's still one more thing, right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so, how do we deal with, with this aspect of, of death and the impurity that comes forth from death? And that's where we need to go to this next confusing item, the third of our confusing items, the things that need revelation. So let's go back to the beginning of our, our portion, and we're going to talk about the red heifer in Numbers 19, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute, Chukat. Torah, the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded, tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering or a purification offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Ah, the year to Okay, so... We're not going to go there, though. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many things to talk about, guys. So we're going to talk more about the red heifer here. So this red heifer is brought outside the camp, and and it's slaughtered. It's without blemish. It's perfectly red. There are, I believe, it was, is, it, is it two hairs that aren't red disqualify it on its entire body? I think it's two disqualify it. That, that are not red. So nine times in recorded history has there been a red heifer 
and the tenth is to be brought by Messiah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're close. We're close, right? And so, um, okay, so this, the, the cleansing, okay, the, the waters of purification that come from the red heifer, it's, at, it's living water combined with a small amount of the ashes of the red heifer are then used to purify people from death from ritual contamination that comes from contact with death. So if someone had come in contact with a corpse, then they're going to need to go and have water sprinkled on them before they can go into the temple. And the, the, the cleansing process is a seven-day process. We didn't read it in verse 11 and 12, but the scripture says that, um, that they will come and they will get purified on the, they get sprinkled on the third day and on the seventh day with the waters from the ashes of the red heifer, and then after that they will immerse, and now they are good to be able to enter the temple. So anyone who had been contaminated with ritual impurity due to death, or coming in contact with death, would have to go to the Passover a week early. Actually, they could do it anywhere, anywhere that there was ashes of the heifer, but it had to be administered by a priest or a pure one, and then, then they could, after that seven-day period, then they could come into the temple. So often people would come to... Uh, Jerusalem a week early, go through their purification process to get ready for Passover. And so this portion about the red heifer is read one other time during our annual cycle, and it's during the month of Adar, because there's a reminder to the children of Israel that, hey, if you've come into contamination with death, you're going to need to plan for this so that you can be ready when Passover comes, because if you don't plan you won't be able to participate in Passover, right? Um, okay, so with this, everyone involved in preparing the ashes that bring cleansing from death become contaminated themselves, right? So it's kind of strange that they, they aren't contaminated. They prepare these ashes and they become contaminated and then somehow the, the, the ashes then take away contamination from someone who's contaminated. It's like, how did, the, how did it cause contamination right here? And now it causes cleansing over here. And why is it that, you know, clean or made unclean? And in Job 14.4, the scripture says, Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. No, but God. Is implied, and there's a midrash that speaks about this specifically, and says, "Who can draw a pure thing out of an impure one? Is it not the one God?" Okay, so people they they understand that the sages understood that this was really talking about cleansing that comes from God. Okay, and even specifically uh, from the Talmud, the sages saw that the, the clean man as God Himself, and the ashes being Israel in exile that need to be gathered. And it's the Messiah who gathers them and becomes unclean because of their sicknesses. And the, all those come upon him such that he might atone for the sin of Israel. So, you know, this is talking about the Messiah, Ben Joseph, who suffers for the sins of the nation. And, or at least it's, it's tied into that. And so we have the picture of Yeshua who took on sin, even though he himself had been pure so that he might make others pure. So you have a really beautiful picture, even though it's a total conundrum. 
and and a something that requires revelation to say what's really going on in this process. Okay, there's a couple of things that we we had read here about the details. It's completely red cow. It's without blemish. Second Corinthians five two. He made the one who knew no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be cleansed. Uh, the scripture said that there would be no yoke could have come upon the red heifer. Okay, and that's an interesting one because when Yeshua was uh, headed towards the cross. Did he carry his cross? No, someone carried it for him. He didn't have the yoke outside the city gate, right? So he didn't bear that. Um, and then Eleazar takes the red heifer outside the camp. Eleazar means God is my help. God is my help. Brings it outside the camp. And it's outside the camp that the red heifer is slaughtered, and Yeshua himself also suffered outside the gate, as is stated in Hebrews 13, 12. And we know that he was taken outside the city gate to a place called the Skull. And that is where his life was offered up. Someone else slaughters it. The priest does not slaughter the, uh, the red heifer, just as the priest did not offer up Yeshua. It was the, the Romans... Who crucified him. Okay, so then they burn the entire cow with ashes, or burn the cow to ashes, and they throw in cedar, hyssop, and crimson thread. Now you should ask, where have we seen this before? We've heard this whole thing about cedar, hyssop, and some kind of crimson things. Okay, so the first one, we can go all the way back to Passover, where the, the blood of the Passover lamb, you dip hyssop into the basin of blood and you put it on the lintels, which are likely cedar posts that won't decay. They may not have been cedar, but still, this is my picture there. Of That's the first one. So you're seeing the beginning of redemption coming through the Passover lamb. And then the covenant at Sinai in Exodus 24, when, when Moses uh, has offered up uh, burnt offerings and peace thanksgiving offerings and he takes some of the blood and he puts it on the people he takes some of the blood and he puts it on the people right so going right back here right think about the rock from whom the water came forth and then you think about the rock from whom the blood came forth and how the water and the blood poured forth from the side of yeshua on the cross so he is the rock that had the water and the blood pour forth which goes back to the blood pouring forth from the rock that came down and covered the people which is covering them with the blood of the covenant. Right? And so now we have the blood of the covenant. So you had the redemption, and then you have the covenant. Now, if you go read Exodus 24, you won't see that it say, it won't, you won't see it say that Moses took this uh, hyssop. Okay? But in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, I don't think I wrote down the verse... Um, but this is worth taking a look at. Yeah, that's not the right one, but thank you for going there. I, I do plan to look at that. Um, there is, in Hebrews 9, here we go, 919, 
Okay, 9.18, let's start there. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the Torah, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Huh, pretty cool, right? So there we, we're kind of going there again. And then we have back in Leviticus 14, there was the cleansing process of the leper and the house that was filled with leprosy. Again, you had these three elements that were there as part of the cleansing from that which is likened to death, right? Because if you recall, one of the aspects of the leper is they were, they were as though they were dead, the dead man walking is what they were. But that which brought cleansing to them, again, came through these images. Okay, so the, the priest and the one who burns are unclean till evening. And then the scripture said that a pure man gathers the ashes, places them in a pure place outside the camp for safekeeping. And it's the waters for sprinkling that removes separation that brings purification is what those ashes are. Okay, so now let's go to, I know we're running out of time, but we're going to keep going a little bit longer. If we go to John 19, verse 38. So Yeshua has been on the cross and he has died, right? And the Sabbath is about to begin. And it says, after these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Yeshua by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Yeshua and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Yeshua there. Okay, so in this story, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they are both pure men. Why can we say they're pure? Well, they were Pharisees who uh, had a relationship here with Yeshua, and they had been prepared to have the Passover meal that night. They were ready. They were in a state of ritual purity, and they came and they gathered the body of Yeshua, essentially the ashes of the red heifer, and they took it, and they prepared him for burial, themselves taking on the contamination of death to give honor to Yeshua, and they took him and they placed him in a tomb that had not been used. It was a pure place outside the camp. An exact parallel of what is to be done with the ashes of the red heifer. And he was laid aside as a sin offering, right? For waters of purification that remove separation, right? Because as part of a thanksgiving or as a peace offering he's making peace between heaven and earth between man and god he's removing the separation he's bringing back relationship and then in his resurrection he has the victory over death and then in his resurrected state he will then cleanse us from death that we too might join him in the coming days so it's really beautiful, right? The water and the blood coming together. Okay, and 
couple couple last little highlights. So the red heifer is para aduma, para aduma. It's the heifer, red. Okay, it's a red heifer. Now aduma, right? If it was, you know, how earlier we talked about how Miriam could be spelled different ways, and it can mean different things. Well, aduma, if you use different vowels, it can be adama, which can be ground or earth. Okay. Also embedded within it is Adam, right? Because man was taken from Adama, so now you have Adam, right? And then what's left? The hay. So you take Adam's name and you add the hay to it. Who else had hay's name to add it, add it, added to their names? Abram and Sarai. You know. So anyway, so then, okay, let's go a little further. Now you've got within the Aduma, there's the word Dama, which is blood. But then it leaves off the Aleph, which is actually a sign of the complex unity. It's a symbol of God. Okay. So anyway, there's just there's a lot going on within the word of red here. Because it can be referring to blood, it can be referring to sin, it can be talking about how man is tied into all of this. And you think about the word who became flesh became man, the second Adam, who would be the redemption, and by his blood. It's all kind of interwoven into this word of the red heifer. So there's more to that, and that's just a, but that's just kind of a quick little thing there. And specifically, a lot of this stuff ties back to Genesis, right? Because even in this case, when we we think about God had asked, what have you done after Cain had killed Abel? He says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And actually, this is where, where I had it. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll become a wanderer and a vagrant, right? So all these aspects, it kind of ties back to there was this fall at the beginning. But now through these mysteries that are revealed in Messiah, the curses are being reversed and the restoration is being made complete. And so now here we are toward the end of the age and the mystery of God and his plan of restoration, not just of the nation of Israel, but of all the nations who will call on his name is being revealed. The mystery of God through Yeshua that we get to go forward and proclaim as we find Yeshua here in the scriptures and see his glory revealed. Okay, so we have the third day where the water is sprinkled. The third day is the day of resurrection. And the seventh day when the water was sprinkled, which is the day of the return of the Messiah, the Messianic era. Pretty cool. So the cleansing from death is tied to the resurrection and the return of Yeshua, the two comings. All right. So in all of this, in this mystery that we, we have, of course, God has given us all that we need. And his provision is covering us over us when we pursue him and seek his face. He provides for our physical and spiritual needs through the water, the Torah, from the rock, who is Yeshua. He forgives and heals us as we look to the Messiah raised up on the banner. And he gives us victory over our enemies, as he did over Sihon and Og. And then he gives us the victory over the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death. And he cleanses us of all defilement. And so in wrapping up, let's read Romans 16, verse 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, 
has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Yeshua Messiah, be the glory forever. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your glory that you have concealed and revealed. To the glories that remain concealed that are yet to be revealed, Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, having seen your wonders, your might, and having experienced your mighty redemption, your salvation, may we walk in faithfulness. May, Lord, we place our trust in you in all things. And even when we don't understand, may we go forward in full faith and assurance that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than ours, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you will accomplish everything according to your word, that it will not return void, that we will see Yeshua's return and the restoration of all things, Lord. And as the rock will give forth its waters in response to your word, Lord, may we pour out ourselves unto you and your service for your glory in the name of Yeshua. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.